Hoosier United Methodist Podcast, Episode 17, with Bishop Mike Coiner. So out of that came the term, imagine Indiana. Let's imagine what God's calling us to do. And and it seemed like the minute we stopped talking merger and we started talking about let's imagine a new future, then the conversation changed a lot. What I find now is the young clergy who've come along and been ordained in the new Indiana conference, they don't have those old issues, the old north-south issues. Hi, this is Todd Outcow, lead pastor at the Calvary United Methodist Church in Brownsburg and writer of the Body, Mind, and Spirit column in the Hoosier United Methodist Together magazine. You are listening to the Hoosier United Methodist podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. strong connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to achieving the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The Hoosier United Methodist podcast will help you and your church connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from successful pastors and people making a difference in United Methodist churches in Indiana. And now, here's Brad. Greetings, good people, and welcome to the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast. This is episode 17. I'm Dr. Brad Miller, and this is the podcast with the purpose of strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church in the state of Indiana through conversation and commentary to accomplish the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Today, you are in for a special treat as we have a great conversation with Bishop Mike Coiner. Bishop Mike, as we know him here in Indiana. It was my privilege and a real pleasure to sit down and have a rather lengthy conversation with Bishop Mike. We touched on a number of topics about the state of the church in Indiana and around the world. Perhaps we even asked some questions of Bishop Mike that may have been on your mind as well. The Hoosier United Methodist Podcast is brought to you today and supports Mission Guatemala. Mission Guatemala, under the direction of Reverend Tom Heaton, is an advanced special mission of the United Methodist Church serving a desperately poor area in rural Guatemala with a preschool, feeding programs, and medical and dental services. To find out more about mission trips and service opportunities in Guatemala, go to missionguatemala.com or hoosierunitedmethodist.com to find out more. Well, it really was special to talk with Bishop Mike about matters of the church that matter here in Indiana and beyond. We talked about his call to follow Jesus Christ as a young man, where he was heavily influenced by his local church, particularly some Sunday school teachers, and by his experiences at Epworth Forest Church Camp. His call to ministry that came out of those experiences, which eventually led to being elected to the Episcopacy. And we talked about that process and about the joys and challenges of his 20 years serving as a bishop in the United Methodist Church in the Dakotas and for the last 12 years in Indiana. We talked about how he views himself as a pastor, first and foremost, but also how he sees the big church and how the big tent of the church is being stretched in recent times by some of the challenges within the church. Perhaps most interesting to Hoosier United Methodist podcast listeners was how Bishop Coiner unpacked in some detail the story of the motivation and implementation of the bringing together of the former North and South Indiana Conferences to form the new Indiana Annual Conference, which we have come to know as Imagine Indiana. You're going to want to hear that story. There are some details there that are really pertinent. Bishop Mike also talks about his advice for new bishops and his encouragement to younger clergy. And moreover, Bishop Mike outlines his hope for the church moving forward based on listening to the wisdom of devoted lay people and embracing the innovations of younger clergy. 
Bishop Mike shares two words that I really want you to look for in this podcast that he believes are important for moving the church forward. Listen for those two words, and I'll unpack them for you after the interview. Bishop Mike also shares the one thing that he's really, really looking forward to in retirement. You're going to hear about Bishop Mike's love of Jesus Christ, his devotion to the United Methodist Church, and his passion for the United Methodist Church in the state of Indiana. Let's make the connection with Bishop Mike Coiner right now. Our guest with us is Bishop Michael Coiner of the Indiana area of the United Methodist Church. Bishop Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be a part of it. Well, I just it's a thrill to have you on the podcast to share a little bit. You've been my bishop for the last 12 years or so, and uh, you have certainly have had a, a great, uh, a lot of things happening in, Indi- in the Indiana area in your time as bishop, and it's uh, sometime in the next few months, it's going to be uh, transitioning as you'll be heading into retirement, and I just wanted to just have this opportunity for us to have a little conversation and for you to share some things about what you might want to share to to the good people. Uh, I'd like to kind of start at the beginning a little bit. Tell, tell me just a little bit about your how you found Christ in your life in the first place and how that led you into ministry. And then we'll go talk about the Episcopal in a second. Glad to talk about that. I grew up in Anderson, Indiana. And when I think about that formative time in my life, I think of really three overlapping, interlocking circles. One was my own family. I was very blessed to grow up in a Christian home. At the time, I didn't think much about that, took it for granted, thought everybody did. I've learned subsequently that's not true for everybody, but our family was very much a Christian home and very engaged in church, First Methodist as it was then, First United Methodist now. And by engaged, I mean my my mother was a Sunday school teacher. She was a youth counselor, went to a camp with us. My dad was Sunday school superintendent and then trustees and all that. So uh, it was just Sunday was church, and we always went to church. So I grew up and was confirmed. So that's one one of the circles. But the other circle then was um, the youth group at my church. I was very blessed. We had a really strong youth program. Uh, The church loved and welcomed youth, so we had a gymnasium in the church, you know, and we had uh, all kinds of youth activities, had a, a pastor on staff named Bill Matisse, who's now a retired pastor, who was a part of that. And then the third circle would be church camp, which particularly for me was Epworth Forest in the north part of the state. And it was really those three things together, but at Epworth Forest is where I guess I would say my faith came alive. I'd been raised in a church confirmed, but as a junior high kid at camp, uh, as many people discover, I, I was at church camp and experienced uh, an invitation to make a public commitment to Christ at one of the fireside services, and I did that. And it was a pretty emotional time for me as a junior high kid to, to discover, I think, the, the personal nature of that relationship. And then later in senior high, that's also the same church camp site with senior high camp where I began to feel called to ministry. At the time, I really tried to kind of ignore it because I had other thoughts for my life, but it kept coming back and coming back. And so the finally, tug, the tug uh, was there. The tug. Yeah. yeah. So finally, the summer before my senior year in high school on a decision night kind of thing, I got up and went forward and said, I'm not sure what this means, but yes. And almost immediately, my home church rallied around me and they were very great. They didn't say, you have to do this. They said, we want to help you figure out if this is the right thing. That's so, a lesson in and of, in and of, of itself about the, absolutely. The, how the local church can come come around people. Yeah, I remember uh, really the Sunday or two after camp, my senior pastor, who I didn't know as well, you know, he was Dr. Fribley. He was way up there. Right. Uh, he did a wonderful job of introducing me. He had me read scripture that day and just say, you know, Mike's exploring where God wants to lead him. And it might be he'll be a pastor someday, might be something else, but we're going to surround him with prayer and love. And they did. They gave me lots of opportunities. So those overlapping circles really came together for me uh, so that by the end of high school, even when I went off to a state college, I was pretty sure I was on a track to go into some kind of formal ministry. And so you did. I did. Yeah. And how did that evolve then? And I'm kind of interested in a little bit how that evolved that you... um, Ended up in the Episcopacy. How'd you get here? How'd you get from there 
to here? Well, it certainly wasn't a career path or plan. I, I went to college, went to Purdue University, and majored in what they now call liberal arts college. It was called Humanities then. And then I went off to seminary at Duke Divinity School and planned to be a pastor. And I still think of myself as a pastor. Of Came course. back to I served a couple student churches in seminary. Came back to Indiana. I served in places like Peru and South Bend and Fort Wayne and, and et cetera. And uh, then at one point in the midst of serving a bunch of churches over a, a period of years, Bishop Hodap called me and asked me to be a superintendent in the Lafayette District, which was interestingly back where college had been with Purdue. So I was back in that home area there. I bet you enjoyed that. I did very much. And my, my grandparents were from that area and they were deceased by then. But my um, my grandfather was a, a banker in a small town and okay. he everybody knew my grandfather, Jake Coiner. Yeah, a little, little bit of, of a legacy in the community. Yeah. And so that was a, when I went around to all these little churches, that was a good name to have. You know, they'd say, are you related to, to Jake Coiner, the banker? Because he'd been one of those guys through the the depression and all that who had been very helpful to people okay. and just and so it was it was nice but anyway after serving on the cabinet for a while then um as as these things work in our system our conference which was the north conference at the time endorsed me to be a candidate for bishop and uh i was young enough i was 46 so at the time everybody said well this is an honor and you know maybe second or third time around you'll really be considered and so that's the attitude I went in which was uh, I'm no, I don't have to be a bishop but I'll go explore this opportunity and I wound up getting elected uh, in 1996 the jurisdictional conference was held in Fort Wayne, Indiana so there were a lot of Indiana people there of course okay. and it was, a, it was a high moment. Then I was assigned to go serve in the Dakotas for two terms total of eight years then assigned back to Indiana so I'm actually wrapping up 20 years as a wow. bishop which How is kind that? of hard to believe it's been that long How about that? Tell me about, I'd like to go back Back just kind of the beginning of that, just for a second. Somewhere in that process of becoming a bishop, there must have been a, a realization moment that, oh my goodness, yes, this could be real. <laughs> This, you know, for the, whatever it was for you, uh, your heart jumping up or whatever. Tell me about what was going on kind of in you when you suddenly had that aha moment that this is happening. Yeah. Well, it was in uh, 1995, we elected delegates to general conference and I was elected first to lead the delegation. And then the delegation that year nominated me and then they brought the nomination back to annual conference in, in May of 96, leading up to jurisdictional conference that summer and that's where it really began to hit me was at at the annual conference meeting in May when the delegation brought their proposal and everybody applauded and voted yes to that it suddenly hit me this this could actually happen and uh, there were in that particular year there were four bishops retiring so we had a lot of openings so my wife and I actually, uh, after annual conference that year, we had planned to take a little vacation. We basically went away together for a week to pray about it and say, are we ready for this? And if this really happens, what do we do? Because we knew it would likely mean moving to a different state. That's typical. And starting over somewhere. And that's a kind of an awesome thing after 25, 26 years of ministry to say, I'm ready to go elsewhere. And as, and as it turned out, then we were assigned to the Dakotas, two states I'd never set foot in my life. So it was quite an adventure to move off and start fresh, really. But, you know, we came out of that basically, and I went through jurisdictional conference election process saying, I don't have to be a bishop. But I'll, I'll see, if that happens, I'll see that as God's call through the church. And that's what happened. And so I said yes. In terms of the Episcopate, you mentioned that you've had a 20-year tenure now. And you're yes. kind of winding that up here in this uh, later this year of, of 2016. Uh, Tell me about some of the really cool things that happened. Just some of the cool things that happened in that 20 years. You must have had some really high moments and I'm sure some, some challenging ones as well. Yes, both. Uh, one thing about being a bishop is you get to travel along around a lot, both in the area, sir, but also around the world, and get to see the church at work. The negative side of that is you also see what we call, as bishops, we call it the underbelly of the church. You see sometimes the worst parts of the church because you deal with the problem cases. But the the better part is uh, to travel around and, and get to see all the things that are happening in ministry and mission all over the world. So I've been in places like the Philippines and, and uh, Sierra Leone and, and uh, 
Lithuania and places like that where uh, the church is is new and alive and vital in Brazil and places like that. So it's it's really a great opportunity. And about anywhere I, I go. To that, but I just want to touch on that a little bit about mm-hmm. how the, to kind of compare the church in those vibrant parts of the world and how you Absolutely. may compare it to some of our uh, other experiences here in North America. But please continue. But it's also true that around the Dakotas and around Indiana, typically, I, I really enjoy preaching and being in local churches. I typically get invited to special events. So I do get a chance to see the church at its best. It'll be a groundbreaking for a new building. Or this past Sunday, I was dedicating a new sanctuary for the Mount Pleasant Church in Terre Haute. And so I, I get invited in for a lot of uh, great celebrations and get to see the church kind of at its best in many ways. During the week, I oftentimes in meetings am dealing with personnel issues and problems to deal with. So it's both and. But I really get to see the church, uh, what one of my colleagues calls it, we get to see the big church. I mean, everybody gets to see their own local church, which is wonderful. But you get to see the bigger picture in the role of bishop because you get to travel around and see lots of things going on. And there's so many good things happening. It's really What do you see in the big fun. picture? What's your kind of your overall vision now of that big picture? Well, I think there's a, first of all, in the southern hemisphere and in eastern Europe and in Africa, clearly, uh, there's a there's just a whole great awakening or revival. I'm not sure what you call it going on. I mean, the church is exploding in many of those areas, both our, our denomination and many others. And some of those places where the church was repressed, like Eastern Europe, it's just profound to see how people survive the faith during the years of Soviet occupation and things like that. And it's almost like seeing the New Testament come alive, these little churches popping up in the middle of nowhere and uh, vibrancy. I mean, I was visiting a, a new Methodist congregation, United Methodist congregation in Mozambique a few years ago. They were meeting under a tree hmm. wow. with, with a tarp, but 500 people there. And 500 people under a tree? Yeah, they had a tarp. Was it a and, pretty uh, big tree, I assume? Well, pretty good-sized tree, and then they had a tarp and things, and, wow. and uh, the, the denomination had given them money to to build a building, but instead they used it to drill a well so they could provide good drinking water to the whole village. Well, of course, the village responded to say, well, you know, who are you people? Why do you care that we all get good water? And they and their theme was we, we provide water, but then we'll teach you about Jesus as the living water. And they were just growing dramatically, uh, that missionary spirit. So I see a lot of that. But I see that in the U.S. too. Uh, we talk a lot about plateauing and decline, and it's true. But I, I also see that alongside that, a lot of new things are, are emerging. A lot of younger people are catching the vision of the church being outwardly focused and mission focused. And uh, yeah, we have churches that are old and dying. We do. Uh, we have a lot of aging population, and we do. But there's a lot of life, too. There's just a lot of life everywhere we go. And, and it's a surprise. Last week, we were talking in cabinet about McNatt, Indiana, where the church was down to five or six people That's a new one 10 years ago. And uh, the part-time local pastor there recently reported they had 146 people on Easter, you know, which <laughs> from five or six to 146 in 15 years is, is phenomenal. Like whatever, a 5,000% increase Yeah, or something. no one's going to write a big article in a national paper about that, but that's just phenomenal. Yeah. And there's, there's those good stories are all around. So one thing about traveling around among churches, as I do, I get to see a lot of that. A lot of that good news. Well, that's cool. That's cool. To have good news that's out there and part of what we're about here on this podcast mm-hmm. is to share the good news stories, not to avoid some of the challenging things that we have, but to uh, sure. that we have good news to share. We do. We but do. I, I would be interested, though, in some of the things that you think are some really challenges to the church right now. What are some things that really threaten the United Methodist Church? Well, the obvious one that everybody talks about is our, our, our split at least in attitude over certain social issues. Sexuality is certainly one of them. And those are true, and we will do battle those. I actually see it a little differently. I, I understand that happens, but I think... I think the biggest difference I see among churches is whether we are focused upon ourselves mm-hmm. or focused outside of ourselves. And it's a it's a huge difference between whether we see the church as an institution to take care of us or we see the church as a mission to be engaged in, in caring and reaching out to others. And obviously it's both and. I mean, there's times we all come to church and we need the church's love and care and compassion. But if we get stuck there, 
that's where I think a lot of churches struggle. We have one church in this conference, for example, it's over in West Lafayette. Uh, they, when new people join the church, they give them aprons, which say, I'm here to serve. And they talk about, you know, you may come to church originally with a bib to be fed, <laughs> but now it's time as you're joining okay. to become a servant and serve others. And I think that's the... That's the dichotomy we're into. I like that one. That's a new one. I've heard some other analogies about you know transitioning, you know the baseball diamond mm. or the moving from the living room to the kitchen and so on. Right. But that's a new one. I really like yeah, that. Yeah, we're here for bibs or for aprons. Is an interesting way to put it. They do in their church, yeah. and I do think that's in the church. Now, a part of that, which is not the whole picture, but a part of that is our differences over issues and how we view scripture. And I think what we've come to as United Methodists is this understanding that. Uh, wow, there's people of good faith who read the same Bible but who disagree on some of these issues. And it's not like... And how can we get along in that process? And how can we get along? Yeah. How can we live together? And it's not like, uh, you know, if if you're a liberal, you have to assume all conservatives are people who are just Bible thumpers. They don't care about people. And if you're a conservative, you don't have to assume, assume all liberals. They don't care about the Bible. I think we have to grow a respect that says people of good faith disagree on some issues. So, as you said, how do you get along? Long in the midst of that, do you allow? How much freedom do you allow? Yeah. Versus how much do you hold each other accountable? Seems to me that's that's pretty, our struggle. Pretty profoundly Christian and Wesleyan, for that matter. It's how how do we yeah. function together? And we've been a pretty big world. tent as United Methodists. We've been a mainline denomination with a big tent where we've allowed a lot of diversity. Right now, it almost feels like the tent's being stretched pretty tight, and how okay. how far can it go? And that's the struggle we face, as as do many other denominations, is how far can it stretch? And being a middle child, I tend to want to try to hold people together okay. <laughs> and okay. find compromises, but they're not always easy to find. You're the you're the uh, negotiator, I guess. I am. Yeah, okay, I'm, cool. I was a middle child between two sisters, and I sort of learned to negotiate my family, I guess. <laughs> well, speaking of, of negotiating, I know that. Uh one of the big things that happened in the state of Indiana during your time as bishop was the bringing together of two conferences. Yes, yes. And uh, maybe you could say just a word about the motivations for that, how that came about, and how it's worked out. It's been a few years since that was implemented. Mm-hmm. Yes. I just like your take on that whole process because some people who listen to this may that is this is not is an issue not only in Indiana. It happens around the United States at least of, it does. of the coming together yeah. conferences. But it's interesting your take on how that is a all evolved mm-hmm. came about. Well, in 2004, when I was assigned to come home to Indiana serve as bishop, the committee that makes those assignments is called the Committee on Episcopacy. It's a lay and a clergy member from each of the conferences conferences of the region, the North Central Region jurisdiction. And when that committee assigned me to come home to Indiana, they said to me, uh, we are sending you to Indiana because the Indiana conferences in Indiana want to consider merging or becoming one conference, and they need someone that is from Indiana who knows them, has some trust, because they want to become one. And I laughed and said, no, they don't. I grew up in Indiana. North and South don't get along that well. I don't think they're serious about it. They said, no, they're very serious about it. So I came to Indiana. And I found there was some seriousness. We had a committee that was already working on it. Bishop White, my predecessor, had started. It's called the Merger Task Force. But when I met with them, they would each come in the room and they'd line up on each side of the table. The North people on one side, the South on the other. And they kind of look at each other like, who are you people? They weren't wearing blue and gray, were they? Not quite. Almost. So I said, after meeting with a few times, I said, I don't think we're ready to get married. We haven't dated yet. Why don't we spend time getting acquainted? as the two conferences. So we set up some processes to have the cabinets meet together occasionally and the lay leadership and all that. And uh, the committee, the merger task force, so-called, we agreed it was time to drop the word merger okay, and start to ask the question, you know, what, what would God want us to be in Indiana if we could start with a blank sheet of paper? So out of that came the term imagine Indiana. Let's imagine what God's calling us to do. And, and it seemed like the minute we stopped talking merger, Merger, and we started talking about let's imagine a new future. Then the conversation changed a lot. Uh, we had a series of votes over three years, really, of each of the separate conferences voting. The first year was simply, do you want us to keep going and working on this? If not, don't waste our time. And the conferences both said, well, yeah, keep working on it. Then the next year we came back with kind of the the basic bare bones outline of what it might look like and said, what do you think? And again, they both said, yeah, I'll keep working on it. And by the third year, we actually came back with a plan. And 
and in between, we did listening sessions all around the state. I, I went to all 18 districts that we had at the time, three times, I think, each, uh, with a team to say, here's what we're thinking, what do you think, and had a lot of engagement. A lot of people were involved in it, which was, I think, a secret. But there was some passion in those meetings. Oh, well, there was. Some some people got real upset. They they got upset about things like, will, will my pension plan change, and you know, right. how much apportionments are you going to charge each church and whatnot. But also a lot of good dreams came out, and I think because we had so many people involved, when the final vote was taken in 2008, it passed both conferences by over 75% each. My only worry in that was that one might vote yes and one vote no, and then we'd be stuck with what do we do now. But it was it was passed very well. And then we had a uniting conference to work on a few more details and launched really the new conference in 2010. So we're still in our first six years as five and a half years as a new conference. How would you evaluate how it's gone in those six years? I think I think overall well. We we had an outside group uh, led by a lay person who does this for a living. He evaluates businesses for a living. We had him do an evaluation in 2013 and he came back with a report. It's called, I forget the interim report it was called, but he did a lot of evaluation. He named the things that we're doing well. One was we really did save money. We streamlined a lot of cost and, and cut back a lot of staff. We streamlined a lot of duplication, and that was a good thing. Uh, he found that being able to work as one and have one voice in Indiana as opposed to the two conferences speaking sometimes differently was helpful. He found that uh, most people, particularly, particularly clergy, seemed to know what we were doing and be affirming. A lot of laity, it didn't seem to impact them. You know, I still have my local church, my pastor. Uh, the place he found we were still weak was getting to know each other better, and that just takes time. It takes like a whole generation. Mm-hmm. And what I find now is the young clergy who've come along and been ordained in the new Indiana Conference, they don't have those old issues, the old north-south issues. They still come up once in a while, but it's, it's gone overall well. Uh, I think the streamlining has really helped us. Both conferences were struggling financially quite a bit. And our even our pension and health care programs were struggling. But being a larger pool together has helped. It's helped us with uh, matching pastors and churches. We've had a bigger pool to deal with. But we get into geography. You know, some people up in the north part of the state say, well, I don't want to go to Evansville. And people in the south part say, I don't want to go up to the Calumet region. Right. So we deal with still a lot of regionalism. But overall, I but think on, it's been on balance, a good thing. On balance, are you pleased? I am. Yes, okay. I'm very pleased on balance. Yeah. Well, that, that's wonderful because I think that everything that we do administratively in the church and everything we do in terms of how we, uh, uh, whether it's spiritual formation or preaching or teaching or mm-hmm. everything we have to do, has to focus on what, what our individual church mission and what our overall right. mission is. And we have said that our mission as a church is the making of disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of yes. the world. Mm-hmm. My question to you, Bishop, is how are we doing on that? Well, interesting. We're doing fairly well, and yet we also struggle. I just this morning actually asked for a report from our staff. I got to wondering, um, in my 12 years here, which is really only 11 years of reports because of the 12 years in process, the question I raised was, how many professions of faith, which is new people brought to Christ, have we had in Indiana? And that doesn't count transfers in or out or transfers one church to the other. And the answer, it was fascinating to me. Uh, over the 11-year period, it turned out to be 55,000 new people brought to Christ while I've been bishop. Now, that's not that I've done it, but, I mean, that's just where I presided over. And I was I was a little surprised the number was that high, frankly, because we have about 200,000 members. Yeah. We, uh, on net, are declining a little each year, but what we're having is it's we're dealing with the death rate. It's not that people are leaving us to transfer to other denominations. It's rather that we're an aging church, and it's hard for us to bring in enough new disciples to make up for mm-hmm. our older faithful members who are passing Sometimes on. Sometimes that's the demographics of communities as it is. well. We have a lot of churches and communities where there's just not many people left anymore. Of course, and then, but we also have the issue that almost in any community, there's a lot of people not going to anybody's church. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we, have, we certainly have a responsibility in that. Yeah, we don't have what I'd call the home court advantage we had when I started ministry. Mm-hmm. When I started ministry, the church was very respected. 
you know, church night on Wednesday night was a common thing in most communities. They wouldn't schedule school or community activities. And Sunday mornings were reserved for church activities. They wouldn't have soccer practice on Sunday morning. Well, now that's all changed. And the, the era of the church culture is long gone. It is gone. Yeah, and I think our churches haven't always adjusted to that. We've just sort of blamed everybody rather than realizing it's a mm-hmm. it's an unchurched culture that we have to treat like a mission field. Yeah. Instead of complaining, well, they ought to they ought to not have soccer on Sunday morning. You spoke about mission field and how we need to see our own local communities with mission fields. Of course, Wesley said the world is my parish. Yes. And you mentioned a, minute, a few minutes ago about how you saw real, you know, really uh, some excitement in the church in places like Europe and in Africa. And uh, but it's kind of compare and contrast that to what we have here in North America. And I'm, I'm looking for signs of hope, but mm-hmm. also signs of how we can kind of define issues. Well, interestingly, I recently had a conversation with uh, folks at the Lilly Endowment here in town who've been okay. very supportive of us and given us grants to do things for our clergy and whatnot. But what we were talking about that particular day, um, some of their leaders said to me, they think there's hope because our United Methodist Church in Indiana has finally being realistic about where we stand, that we'd lived in kind of a, a dream world up till now, just assuming we could keep doing things like we used to do. And they they were saying to me, that's been, that's as they see it, part of what I, they, I've led them to do is to face reality as opposed to live in the past. And they see that as hopeful. We have to, we have to deal with the brutal facts sometimes first to yeah. start making a difference. Deal with the brutal facts and still move forward in faith. Exactly. And I, I think there's some truth to that. I think we were in a little bit of a denial of uh, decline and things like that. We just, we're still the biggest denomination in the state, so we right. just, we brag a lot about being big and tough and strong, but then we have to realize, wow, we, we've we lost a lot of momentum in a lot of places that's hard to get back. Mm-hmm. So maybe dealing with that reality will help us have more hope for the future. Well, speaking of realities that we as a church have to deal with both here in Indiana and around the world, General Conference is coming up here before yep, too long. Month. We're talking in April of 2016, and next month in May is General Conference. And that impacts a lot of clergy who uh, will be listening to this podcast. Um, What's your take on some of the issues that are before General Conference, in particular how they will impact the local church? Mm-hmm. Well, General Conference is an odd animal, and particularly as a bishop, it's very odd. We sit on the stage together as bishops, don't have a lot to do. We take turns presiding over sessions, and a few of us are picked to to preach or whatever. But we don't have voice or vote at General Conference, so we sit on the stage and watch it happen. And uh, sometimes it's discouraging because you can see the whole congregation there and think, wow, um, they're not listening to each other. They're not making much progress. The last General Conference in Tampa was particularly frustrating because the, the General Conference passed a lot of changes for the church, which, many of which I thought were pretty good, structural, restructuring and all that. And then the Judicial Council, which is our Supreme Court, ruled them all unconstitutional. And the last night of General Conference, people were sitting around saying, why did we waste two weeks here? Yeah. Now, they did some good things that weren't really ruled out of order, but there was that sense. So I don't know what the new one will be here uh, in 2016. My guess is there won't be huge changes because uh, the structure itself doesn't lend itself to a lot of change. You know, it's a big group. Uh, They've reduced the number of delegates from 1,000 to 850, but that's still a huge group of people. It's more and more global. There'll be translations into, I think, seven languages as the things move along. So you have a lot of differences of culture and language to try to understand each other. So it's unlikely to see that as a leadership team, (laughs) 850 people. It's really set up to be a legislative committee and like a large Congress to vote. And so they go through legislative groups and small groups and petitions, and eventually they come back to the to the full plenary. And it's a slow process. So I think if people look to General Congress to really lead change, it's not the place it will happen. Well, I guess that, that's part of the uh, part of what I think is a challenge before the whole United Methodist Church. Yes. We are a big, big, big organization. Mm-hmm which traditionally has moved slow, and yet we're in a fast-moving world. Exactly. And there's something incongruent with that, and we're not keeping up all the time. 
And therefore, yeah. we're, that's part of the reason, at least from my perspective, that we have some challenges, particularly mm-hmm. in North America, uh, about growth and vitality. And so we do, and, and uh, we're not nimble, would be one way to put it. Yeah. Uh, we also have changing demographics as a church. So this time, a larger and larger percentage of the delegates are from outside the U.S. It's, I think, about 43% are from outside the U.S. Uh, they tend to be, not all of them, but they tend to be a little more conservative, uh, a little more concerned with not changing things. They don't, many of the Africans who come particularly say to me, we don't want to come here. Americans argue about their sexual cultures. We want to talk about the gospel. We want to talk about mission education, which I affirm. Kind of hard to argue with that. Hard to argue with that. <laughs> but it makes it hard for U.S. churches to deal with some of the issues yeah. we have to deal with. We have to deal with some of the issues. So we're not very nimble. Uh, I, I really think general conference follows the church. I think the local churches and local missions are really where we're on the cutting edge more often and where changes happen and we adapt to communities. And then the general conference comes along and they kind of codify that and put it into the rule book for us, a book of discipline. But it's hard to expect the general conference to really be very creative and to lead. Well, having identified this as one issue we have is general, generally as a church that uh, I doubt if we're going to solve that. Or you and I here today and maybe general conference won't uh, solve that. But I am looking for signs of hope. What do you see as signs of hope in the United Methodist Church? Well, what I mentioned earlier is how much uh, growth there is outside of the U.S. And I think a, a genuine sense of partnership. The, the Board of Global Ministries, for example, their new slogan is missions from everywhere to everywhere. And so I think the more we become less U.S.-centric and seeing ourselves as the rescuer of the world, mm. and the more we see ourselves in partnership with the world, I think there's a lot of hope there that we can learn from other places in the world. We're not just the ones who... And perhaps some of those third world countries could rescue some of us first world uh, people. Exactly, well. yeah. I know the Missouri Conference, for example, some years ago, they they invited over the leaders of the Mozambique Conference in Africa and said to them, come teach us how to do evangelism because we're not doing very well. Yeah, cool and I think that? we need to do more of those kinds of partnerships. That's one thing. I think another thing that's uh, really a sign of hope is the way we are able to tackle some big issues. One of them, I would say, is malaria through nothing but nets and now imagine no malaria we have really reduced the number of children in Africa and other places dying of malaria and we've done that in partnership with other health organizations around the world but if you stop and look at uh, effectiveness in ministry to say well we've reduced the number of children to die from malaria that's a pretty cool result and I, so I think we've learned how to do some things around the world in partnership with other groups. The Gates Foundation was involved in that, for example. I think this whole idea of partnerships, whether it's with other other uh, groups within our denomination, mm-hmm. even with other denominations, and even with things like the Gates Foundation uh, and uh, business entities, yes, right, health entities, governmental entities. Uh, just from my uh, approach, I think that's could be a real way of moving forward. I do, too. I do, too. And alongside that, third one I'd name would be... Um younger clergy. We've we've really reached a point of reaching a lot of younger clergy in Indiana, but it's happening elsewhere. And you and I are old enough to see the differences there. They bring a different attitude. They're tech savvy. Uh, they're not quite as career focused as uh, they're more mission focused. And I think there's a lot of a lot of hope that uh, we you know we when I came back to Indiana in 04, one thing I was told and statistics proved it, we didn't have very many younger clergy under 40. And now we have a lot. In fact, this year at conference, we've got a lot of babies to baptize of clergy families because we have a lot of younger clergy, and that's been good for the church. I think the I think the way to reach younger generations is not simply about the age of the pastor, but it doesn't hurt to have pastors in their twenties and thirties. They can speak to people more clear more clearly of that age than I can at my age. Absolutely. Well, as we begin to um as we have some of these transitions happening in the United Methodist Church, I would so you certainly have one for you that you're mm-hmm. going to be retiring before too long. And that means that you've had 20 years of experience as a bishop and your whole ministry experience that you have. Yeah, 44 all 44. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't going to count them with you. But, uh, <laughs> but you've had a wealth of experience in every, just about every level of the, of, of the church. Mm-hmm. 
first of all, what kind, kind of put yourself back when you first began as a bishop and some of those, you know, butterflies of stomach, whatever you had, maybe someone spoke to you then, another bishop, but I'm thinking about what kind of things might you say to a new bishop? I'm not even particularly thinking about who may come here to Indiana, right? but what kind of things would you say to a, a brand new bishop? These are some things that are scary to look out for. These are some things that are just fill your heart with joy. Well, one of the things I was told by a veteran bishop when I came on, well, one was humorous, but one was helpful. He said to me, you'll find there's a lot of chicken and green beans in the world. And I've found that in a lot of church <laughs> suppers. Church here, you know, <laughs> wow. But he said to me, uh, just remember, it's never as bad as they say it is, and it's never as good as they say it is. And, and so he was offering a, advice to be a little more even keeled as you deal with problems and possibilities. And I think that's true. Uh, leaders need to be non-anxious as much as they can be. And I'd say to a new bishop, whether they're in Indiana or elsewhere, um, don't overreact to every little fad that comes along because things are, you know, the church is very solid. The church is going to be around forever, I believe. And uh, there's a lot of good in the church, so don't panic so much. That'd be one thing I'd say. The other I'd say is listen to uh, listen to a lot of lay people. I mean, the clergy, I want to hear what they say, but a lot of lay people, they know more about the church, what it really is. We, we pastors come and go and we move around, but I have found the wisdom of the laity is uh, something I've tried to listen to because there's just a lot of folks who they understand the real world and they also understand the church and they they live in both worlds. Of course, Wesleyanism is founded on involved laity. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yes, that's in our heritage, our DNA, and that's who we are. When we become too clerical, too clergy-focused, I think we lose some of that. And kind of taking this whole theme and, and moving on with a little bit... Let's say you're talking, and I know you do this, you're talking to some of these younger clergy that you've talked to who are just starting off. Mm-hmm. What kind of words of advice or uh, encouragement do you give to those folks who maybe well, started like that 40-something yeah. year process? One thing I like to do is tell them what it was like when I started as they start to think of me as a dinosaur. I talk about what limited technology we had you know we didn't have cell phones we didn't have computers and all that and the more i tell those stories they look at me like i'm really a dinosaur but then i say to them that's how much ministry's changed during my years it's going to change that much or more during your years you've got to really keep up you've got to learn what's going on in the world you've got to keep up with technology keep up with the trends and uh, i think they hear that but it's uh, it's a challenge um it's being a pastor today is far more difficult than when i was a new pastor um, I think my first church, really, they expected me to pretty much read them a sermon. We didn't do much other than read a manuscript, uh, pray with those who are ill, visit around the homes, and maybe do a Bible study. There wasn't much. Now it's everything from putting together PowerPoints to managing an organization to really understanding finances and leadership. It's just very much more complex. And as, as we talked about earlier, back then when I started ministry, it was a home court advantage. It was a churched world. Right. It, it, People kind of expected to be church members, and now it's a, it's a challenge. So I, I say to young clergy, you really have to be as much as you can on the cutting edge of all that because you're the ones that are going to lead the church into the future. Well, that's uh, that's good. Some good thoughts there, and good advice I think for the younger clergy. But I want you to have the opportunity, Bishop Pointer, just to share anything you'd like to share. To anyone who might be hearing this, mm-hmm. this is a podcast that's targeted towards United Methodist leaders and clergy. Mm-hmm. And as you make some transitions in your life, and you hate, you've had this, you've mentioned you kind of had this, what I might call a 20,000-foot view of the church, but you've also been involved in the trenches. I know that about right. you. Right. What do you want to say to uh, to the good people who may be listening to this, who love the United Methodist Church and love Jesus and do believe in the mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world? Well, the big thing I'd say is I'm still very, very hopeful about the church. There's days I'm not optimistic, but I'm always hopeful because I think our hope is in Christ and not in our own abilities. But I'm very hopeful. I see so many uh, good signs in the life of the church. I I really, that's the other thing I've said to young clergy is I'm jealous of you because you're going to have a wonderful 30 or 40 years ahead of you. And I'm going to be retiring and still going to do something in ministry. I'm not sure what, but I'm jealous you're going to have, you're going to be leading the church through some great times. They're going to be challenging times, but I think that's when the church is at its best. There's a lot of uh, historical 
uh, proof, I think, that when the church is comfortable, we don't do well. Hmm. But when we're under duress, even under persecution, Christians seem to step up. So I think these next 20, 30 years are going to be challenging years for the church, but I think they're going to be good years. I think we're going to sort out you know, the necessity of being really committed to Christ and our mission. And a lot of things that we have called church, we're going to lay aside. They're not important. Well, I think that's a good word for us to begin to wind this, our conversation down. Here's one more thing. What are you really looking forward to in retirement? What is you just jazzed about more than anything else that you're going to look forward to getting after once you actually retire? Well, uh, I don't want to be trite, but it's my grandchildren. Okay. Uh, we're blessed to have some wonderful grandchildren, and uh, my schedule limits how often I can be there with them. So really looking forward to that. My wife is already sort of retired from teaching and does lots of volunteer work. But as we've talked about our schedule, we've said, well, we're going to have more time to visit grandkids. That's certainly one thing. I also uh, look forward to uh, schedules where I can do more reading than I've had time to do at times and and travel by choice. A lot of my travel has not been by choice. It's been by assignment. So we're not going to just run out and travel around the world, but I think we've, we've talked about where are some places we might like to go for our own edification. Uh, we don't have a long list that way, but there's certain things, and, and so we'll do some of that, I'm sure. The other thing I'm looking forward to is, is friendships. I've, I've, I've found a lot of good friendships in ministry, and being back in Indiana has enhanced that. So, uh, you know, just to have a chance to go out to dinner with friends, I don't get a lot of that now because I'm always going to meetings, it seems, or some kind of mission work. So uh, we'll look forward to all that. But um, we're also kind of vague about that. We don't know exactly what it's going to be, and we're you okay. you got some open ends, huh? Some open ends. Which you haven't had a whole lot of, I would assume. No, most of my life's been pretty well structured. So well, uh, I think we're going to be okay okay with that. It's, it, probably my wife's a little more nervous about that, and I have to promise her I'm not going to mess up her schedule too much, and <laughs> I won't reorganize the kitchen or something like that. I've been told that's off limits. Well, so. I'm sure you'll have a whole new set of challenges when I'm this, sure. this comes I'm sure. Well, I just want to say to you, it's been a pleasure to have you with us on the podcast today, and certainly a pleasure to have to serve under you in, in the thank United you. Methodist Church thank in you. Indiana, and, and we, I just want to say thank you for your service to the church here in Indiana, Dakotas, and other places that you've been throughout the world, and uh, thank you for your, for your oh, service. Thank you very much. It's been a real privilege. That would be one thing I would say to any new bishop or any new clergy is I think ministry is really a privilege. It's not it's not something to make a career out of in the sense of I, I, the church owes me this, but it's been a privilege, and I've really enjoyed it. Many thanks again to Bishop Mike Coiner for sitting down with me for this interview. I really appreciate it. I certainly found it helpful and insightful, and I'm sure that you found some information that you can apply to your ministry context. In particular, I hope that you picked up on the two words that Bishop Coiner mentioned as important for the church moving forward. They were the words nimbleness and partnership. That is, the church has to be nimble enough to adapt and adjust quickly to a changing world and also that the church needs to be in partnership with other Christian groups and faith communities as well as the business community and medical and government communities in order to advance the mission in partnership. You also heard what he's looking forward to most in retirement, and that is spending time with his his grandchildren. I think we can all appreciate that. In our conversation, Bishop Coiner described himself as having an even-handed approach to leadership. And I just want to say that I have found my experience in serving under Bishop Coiner the last 12 years, I've certainly found him to be just that, even-handed, and to be a genuine, progressive, and transparent in his leadership within our annual conference. Indeed, it's been my observation that he has dealt with most every matter with compassion and with a listening ear, even when dealing with some sensitive and tricky issues, like the bringing together of the of two distinct annual conferences as one. Uh, that in, in and of itself is a bit of a marvel, I believe. So I'm sure you good people will join me in being very, very thankful that God brought Bishop Mike back home again to Indiana to guide us through the last 12 years with vision and humility. Bishop Mike will continue to serve as a resource as bishop in residence in that he and his wife, Marcia, will be making their home in the Indianapolis area after retirement. So thank you, Bishop Mike, for your legacy, which will be carried out in vibrant local churches, the, the committed clergy and the passionate lay people of the Indiana Conference of the United Methodist Church. 
Now, Bishop might go find those grandchildren. So, good people, episode 17 of the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast was sponsored by and is supportive of Mission Guatemala. Under the direction of Reverend Tom Heaton, Mission Guatemala has a story worth telling. It's a story about what God can do through a mission in the United Methodist Church, which literally rose from nothing to have a powerful impact for good in just a few short years. All of this because of an incredible world-changing vision. So go to MissionGuatemala.com to find out more about that vision and about the story of Mission Guatemala, or you can always check it out in our show notes at HoosierUnitedMethodist.com. You can be supportive of the Hoosier United Methodist podcast by spreading the good news about the podcast to your network of friends and colleagues through your Facebook posts, tweets, and conversations. You can connect with the growing Hoosier United Methodist community at facebook.com slash Hoosier United Methodist. And especially, it would be very much appreciated if you would find Hoosier United Methodist podcast on iTunes and there subscribe to it and give us a five-star rating. And if you deem us worthy of that, and then leave us a line or two review. That's subscribe, rate, and review. When you do this on iTunes, that really helps people who are searching the web for like-minded content to find us. On our on our webpage, HoosierUnitedMethodist.com, you can find show notes about this episode and, and links and other things to connect with the resources about the episodes. And you can also find out about the past episodes of the Hoosier United Methodist podcast. And we also have a free gift for you there on the website, so please go there. It has indeed been a pleasure to serve you today, and I hope that you've enjoyed the interview with Bishop Coiner. And we'll tune in again next time to the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, when we will have another great guest who shares their story of strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church in Indiana to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Until next time, this is Dr. Brad Miller encouraging you to do all the good you can. Thank you for listening to the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. We challenge you to be an active listener by subscribing and becoming a vital member of the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast community. Visit us on the web at HoosierUnitedMethodist.com and chat with other members at Facebook.com slash Hoosier United Methodist. Until next time, continue to make disciples and transform the world.